Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Listeners, I'm so excited today to welcome our guest. Sam J. Miller has written books such as The Art of Starving and Blackfish City, and most recently, The Blade Between, which comes out in paperback next month. Uh, He is a multiply award-nominated and winning author and all-around fabulous person. Sam, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, I haven't Absolutely. gone in my trunk in a really long time, and it's <laughs> terrifying and exciting to have a reason to do so. Yeah, I uh, I have not written a whole lot in the last couple of years because of you know the pandemic and changing jobs and changing living situations, and largely because I'm making a podcast full time now, also. But uh, it's always a fun time when I do take a chance to look back in my trunk and either cringe or say, oh, hey, actually I was on to something there. Uh, So you're going to be reading to us from Blue Matter. Is there anything we need to know about it going in? Um, No, I don't think so. Is it... um, I am assuming I can give the whole spiel of where this fits into my many, many trans novels. Absolutely. at the at the end, um, or is, is now a better time to do that? No, let's get into it afterwards. Awesome, awesome. So this was a novel that I wrote in I want to say two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, and it's sort of um, uh, I'm sort of obsessed with Soviet history and with robots, and so this is a, a novel about what would happen if instead of a space race, the U.S. fought a robot race with the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union won. Fantastic. Well, that's what I thought, but no one else did. All right. Book one, October 1949. Hey, said the sailor, looking like something coaxed out of marble by Michelangelo, a filthy, sooty statue, dry in the downpour, smiling like trouble. The sailor was something more than human. Matheson Mm. slowed down without wanting to. The Times Square morning rush was almost at full force, yet everyone else had ceased to exist the second this divine specimen of seedy man stepped into his path. The sailor waved a cigarette. You, uh, got a light? His eyes were hot fire aimed in Matheson's direction. He stepped closer. Matheson could have rubbed his face against the sailor's jagged stubble. Matheson fumbled through his pockets, lowering his head to hide the red flush of his cheeks. Desire was wreaking havoc on his heart. A few more seconds and he'd fall to his knees. A man slept, slumped in a doorway, under a newspaper whose headline screamed, Senator warns of Soviet scientific advances. Otherwise they were alone under the theater marquee in a sea of people. Here, he said finally, handing over a book of matches, and then he gathered his miserable willpower and ran. Out from under the marquee, into the rain, a half block later he turned around, but the crowd had swallowed up the sailor. 
Manhattan was marvelous like that. So many people, so easy to get lost, so easy to escape the things he feared. A supremely mathematical city, its straight streets and avenues and the orderly grid of it a welcome change from the intimate, intrusive chaos of his native London. In London, it was not so easy to hide from what one had done or what one was. At the corner, he realized he had been running and stopped to catch his breath. From his pocket, he pulled a paper bag of jelly beans. He inspected each one and threw most of them onto the sidewalk. Orange, cherry, apple, lemon. They did too good a job approximating the taste of the thing they were imitating. Only licorice interested him. They were wonderfully artificial tasting, almost mechanical, like the oil that powered some carnival machine. Matheson spent a long time chewing, trying hard to stop imagining a series of scenes involving him and that sailor in an empty warehouse beside the piers. Men and women hurried past him. Babe Ruth was dead. Joe Lewis had retired. Black men were being signed to Major League Baseball teams. Europe was a poverty-stricken ruin. China had fallen into commie hands. India had won her independence from the British. Terror and grief tainted the faces of everyone around him. Their world was crumbling. Everything they knew was being challenged, but it was not his world. It was nothing he loved or cared about. Don't come to the office and don't stay home. See how a change of scenery changes your thought process. We don't know who's listening. The morning's message from his boss had been waiting with the desk clerk at his hotel when he came down. This was her method and a maddening one. Deborah Abelard believed that information was power and she doled it out in tiny pieces, keeping everyone in the dark about some huge corner of the work, even when, or maybe precisely because, it created friction between men who should have been on the same page. Paranoia was part of her method as well. In his head, he sketched out formulas for the stealth payload delivery mechanisms that his unit was currently working on. Dreadfully boring stuff, simultaneously easy and useless, and when Christopher Matheson's mind was not fully engaged, it drove him to do dangerous things. What he needed was something big, something all-consuming, something to swallow up every scrap of mind energy. Until it happened, he'd be at risk. Every sailor who winked at him would ruin his day. The rain began again as he arrived at the western edge of Manhattan. The Hudson, so much wider and choppier than the Thames, smelling of the sea when the wind was right, he turned north and walked along the waterfront. Twenty city blocks later, he approached a lone figure standing still and looking out across the water. Instinctively, he avoided eye contact, and yet, as he passed it, Hello, Christopher. Deborah, what are you, how did you know I'd be here? She fell into step beside him. One way or another, I've always got an eye on you. Jellybean? She took a fistful. So, did you come looking for me for a reason? Yes. Deborah Abelard was a big woman. She moved straight down the middle of the walkway, and she moved at a very leisurely pace. People cursed, passing her coming and going. Did you see mm -hmm. the newspaper, Christopher? Senator Simeon's latest rant. Some nonsense about the Russians. Your American politicians are somehow even more ridiculous than ours. Stirring people up over nothing. I have something very sensitive, she said. One of my shittier contacts in the espionage game got it to me. I know you think I'm some crazy person, but there's a reason I spend so much money and time on surveillance and intelligence gathering. This information is going to put us at a considerable advantage. Advantage over who? We're already the biggest unit in our field of defense. It's not other government and military units I'm afraid of, Christopher. Ah, yes, the evil corporations you're always on about. You sound like that senator, imagining incredibly powerful enemies bent on your destruction. <laughs> My enemies are real, our enemies. Encased in plastic, she held a photographic print, 
a grainy image of a hastily typed sheet of paper. This speech was delivered by Stalin two days ago and reprinted in Pravda today. Only a handful of intelligence people in this country know about it. The president doesn't even know about it. She handed it to him. 2,200 years ago, Aristotle said, if every tool, when ordered or of its own accord, could do the work that befits it, then there would be no need for unskilled workers and slaves. Today, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics will create these tools, machines that will end class divisions and injustice forever and lead mankind on its next giant leap forward. While the West wastes all its energy building bombs, devices whose only purpose is unthinkable destruction, we will focus our energy on creation. We will create machines that can do anything people can do without need of food or water or sleep, who cannot be exploited by the capitalist powers of the West. The speech went on from there, descending into Stalin's standard polemic. And, he said, what do you think about the machine men? She put her hand on his arm. Deborah Abelard had a mother hen quality about her. Like any good department head, she attracted and nurtured great talent, but she specialized in vulnerable cases. Take Matheson, for example. She knew what he was. She knew about the industry liaison that had almost resulted in his arrest and the loss of his security clearance back in England. She kept him safe, and he built marvelous things for her. I think this madman is spouting a lot of nonsense. Do you, Christopher? I've read your articles, Computing Machinery and Intelligence, published in 1939. I propose to consider the question, can machines think? This should begin with definitions of the meaning of the terms machine and think. Christopher, look at me. This is the project you were born to work on. I, so I love every bit about that. And I have similarly obsessed over Soviet technology and, uh, there, my my family in history intersects with the Soviet Union in a very big way. I would not be who I am without my parents, uh, my father leaving uh, Latvia during the war. So uh, it is, you know, always a special interest of mine, and I want to read the rest of that book. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad someone heard some of it, and that's what they thought. Um... <laughs> Yeah, this this one this one made the rounds. Um, it was my fourth novel, um, and I sent it everywhere. And I still have a folder, like a physical folder, because that's how long ago this was. Oh yeah, of 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 letters. Uh, there were email email submissions were a thing then, but many agents didn't do them. So I have uh, mm-hmm. digital and hard copy. Um, no thank yous from a lot of places. Uh, including some nice, like, let me see it, let me see the first three chapters, let me see the whole thing, um, but nothing that ever parlayed into representation. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very strange coming back to it. I, I wrote um, six novels before The Art of Starving, my first novel, was published, um, mm-hmm. and I've almost never gone back to look at any of them because I'm horrified of what I'm going to find. And while I had a lot to learn about writing dialogue, as I'm seeing looking over uh, that, that first chapter, um, yeah, there's some stuff there that's not terrible, um, which is quite a surprise. Yeah, it's really um, one of the projects I'm embarking on this year is, is returning to my first novel as a just ground-up rewrite-changing a lot about the setting, changing a lot about a lot of it, but keeping the core idea. And uh, I've, I've promised myself I'm not going to 
look back at the original draft until after I've finished the new draft, but it is really interesting to see, like, oh, you know, maybe the craft, parts of the craft weren't there, but there were, you know, there were ideas there that still have merit, and that's just, you know, I think that's one of the fun things about this show, is, like, letting authors, giving authors an excuse to revisit and maybe cringe, maybe not cringe, but at least if they're cringing, they're not by themselves. <laughs> A shared cringe is so much better. Yeah, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about how this ties in with the rest of your Trump novels, especially. Um, I think that I try to learn a big lesson with everyone, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. uh, any writer who's got a trunked anything knows, like, it's it's really hard. And 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 I, you know, for each of my novels, I they it was something that I worked on for a really long time and really loved and fell in love with the characters. And it was a really difficult process of of um, mm -hmm. of a failure. Uh, and usually, the only thing that got me out of the depression that followed um, universal rejection was to start a new. <laughs> novel um so that i could right. repeat the fun uh and misery um <laughs> but i think this is this this represents a point when i had um learned a lot about telling a complex story mm -hmm. um and i think i was trying to lean into um characters that really that you that one feels things for um mm -hmm. so so i think it i think it um it benefits from that. I think, I think I can see that I wasn't reading nearly as much speculative fiction, uh, as I, mm -hmm. as I have. Um, and while it's always been a huge part of my life as a reader, um, I would also read a lot of other books and a lot of the science speculative fiction that I was reading back then was older stuff, right? Like Octavia Butler right. is my favorite science fiction writer, but that was about as like close to current as I got, right? I wasn't really mm -hmm. as aware as I should have been about what's going on. And so a lot of it, um, you know, a lot of the, the delivery is really stilted. A lot of the sort of like, let me have my dialogue, do all the work of world building and uh, communicating complex mm -hmm. scientific stuff. Um, so yeah, I think it, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. I get why no one wanted you. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I th it's, it's also the last adult novel of my trunk novels because after that mm -hmm. i wrote two young adult novels um that were um that were trunked but it was young adult that i that ultimately got me an agent and got me right. published and um that was the art of starving and so the transition to young adult was really important so this this represented mm -hmm. a sort of like shift of like let me try a slightly different tactic yeah i i was just thinking uh so you said this was around 2008, 2009 that you wrote this, that um, that was about the same time that I wrote uh, one of my longest trunked pieces that isn't a novel, that was this, like, steampunk story that was essentially just two guys talking back and forth about how smart they were, uh, and, like... So I just very much feel a sense of solidarity of like, oh yeah, like there is a point where you're just doing all your exposition in, you know, in dialogue and 
I think especially in sort of like the mode of steampunk at the time, that was just like part of the fashion. And I still get why nobody wanted to touch it because it was like a 10,000 word epistolary, <laughs> let's talk about how smart we are story that like leaned into horror at the end, but only like really got horrific at the very, very end of it and never. It was trying to do a Lovecraft thing, and it didn't. It didn't even do the thing that I imagine the Lovecraft thing does better than it actually does. <laughs> Fair. So, you know, you you just mentioned like this was the last adult novel you wrote before leaning into young adult, and I I wonder if you have any differences in how you approach the two. I won't say genres because young adult is not a genre genre as much as people treat it as this big homogenous thing. But how you approach um, I don't really. a different audience. Um, I don't. I, I think that um, I a lot of my short stories, a lot of the, the short stories that, 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 were, that I've had published um, uh, are the protagonists are young people. Uh, I think I'm really drawn to those stories. I think um, you know, adolescence mm-hmm. is such a nightmare time, but also a magic time that um, it's like endlessly rich uh, field uh, to mm-hmm. mine uh, for for narrative. Um, and I think that usually, like, so I've, I've, I'm all over the place in a lot of ways, right? I've written ad- for adults and young adults. Um, I'm also I've written a horror novel. I've written a fantasy novel. I've written a science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend to figure out what something is about halfway through, or I don't figure it out and somebody else tells me. Uh-huh. Um, so, so I, yeah, I'm not, that's not like genres are marketing categories right there. Like, right. It's, do you like it or do you not like it? That's, that's the only question mm-hmm. I have about, about something. Um, so yeah, I mean, I always tell people like what, what I have gotten the question, how do you write about young people? Um, I always say, because I have not matured at all <laughs> since I was a young person. Um, I am merely more easily tired now. Yeah. So if I make fewer bad decisions, it's not because I'm smarter. It's because I'm really tired. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, there's no, I, don't, I don't approach it super differently. Um, I mean, there's different, you know, you approach everything differently, but there's not a sort of mm-hmm. like, okay, now I'm going to do young people. I need to think about this, this, and this. Um, right. Yeah. The only, I mean, I wrote, um, when, when The Art of Starving sold, I said to my editor, when, when, we had, when we had received an offer, but we hadn't accepted it yet, mm-hmm. um, I said to my editor, are you comfortable with the amount of F-bombs and gay sex in this young adult novel? And she was like, I think it has just the right amount of F-bombs and gay sex. Excellent. Um, and the only thing that, in The Art of Starving, that ended up being like a thing where my editor said, just FYI, I think... You don't. I, I think this will this will be a a, a thing that readers will bounce off of. Mm-hmm. Was not anything uh, content warning e or whatever. It was like a page long dus- discussion of the characters' research into uh, global meat production <laughs> and like what 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 slaughterhouses are like and and what what the business of slaughterhouses is. Uh-huh. Um, and that's you know I think that that's it's probably accurate that young people are less interested uh, than adults in reading about things like that. I mean mm-hmm. I was obsessively reading about that shit when I was fifteen, but I, I'm not I'm I'm not every I'm not every young young person. Yeah, not every young person is reading Michael Pollan. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. 
yeah, I, I was just thinking, like, you know, I might have run across that and scratched my head at fifteen, sixteen, but I probably would have still been super into it, so... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, what people, you can't, you, you, you write what you want to write, and people are going to bounce off what they're going to bounce off of. For sure. I really appreciate, um, you know, the, the authors who I talk to who bridge the gap between adult and young adult or middle grade or other quote-unquote juvenile fiction, uh, I really appreciate that every author of kidlet of whatever stripe who I've talked to or who I've read, you know, essays from all has the approach of, like, we don't talk down to kids, like, and especially, I think, especially, I think, for young adult, like, teenagers are way more, you know, are definitely naive in a lot of ways because they're teenagers, but, and and if you're a teen and listening to this, like, sure, at me, but, like, I'm, I'm just speaking from personal experience, but, like, you're also, like, teenagers are so savvy to so many things, and, like, really tuned into when people are talking down to them yeah yeah i i i agree and um i think i mean it's a it's magical i really love young adult i love reading it i love writing it uh i think um in a way in a lot of ways you can be honest with young adult in a way that you Mm -hmm. can't with adult fiction um and that some of my favorite young adult novels are um you know, the, there's with, with adult novels, the voice, the, the narrator has to sort of like know everything, right? Has to has mm-hmm. to understand the way the world works. Um, there's like a there's a worldview that the, the protagonist has that is maybe trying to figure, maybe learning, maybe trying to figure stuff out. Um, but the young adult narrator is figuring out how the world works and, and doesn't know mm-hmm. and is and is like questioning and asking questions including really good questions that adults think they're too smart to ask so um the the voice is is a, is a challenging but 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 wonderful it's a really yeah. fun fun sandbox to play in it, it, and it's also like i think it's really nice to read in that space because as an adult it challenges me to like actually remember to ask the sorts of questions that teenagers are asking because like it's so easy to just you know i mean i'd say easier in like 2015 or so to have just sort of like gone on and said yeah like yeah that's that's just kind of how the world works without questioning as as much like the last jesus six years have been a a little bit eye-opening even for you know more politically left-leaning people in general but uh it's definitely like that's definitely a thing i really appreciate in uh in the young adult space so I, I imagine that the answer is going to be somewhat the same here, but do you have any things that you pay attention to specifically between, or maybe not between, but to just be on the lookout when you are doing horror versus fantasy versus science fiction? I think that there are things that each genre does best. 
um, or there's a toolkit that each genre um, comes with, mm-hmm. and you can mix and match, and and you know you can you can use tools from multiple toolkits, but I think that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I could co- condense it into anything um, useful or, or insightful, but I do think that there are certain things that certain genres are better for and certain moods and stories that, that are, are going to be best served with something and that if you're going to write in that genre, you should be reading it and you should know it and you should be mm-hmm. uh, consuming enough um, enough knowledge about something to be able to be in conversation with things, right? Right. Um, one of my favorite writers is Ted Chang, and he was my clarion instructor, and he had this great thing about how genre is a conversation. Oh, uh-huh. Um, and sometimes when somebody writes something in a genre that they don't read, that they're not familiar with, it's like joining a conversation that's already started. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might say something that's really smart and amazing and interesting, but it's something that the conversation has already covered, right? Right. Like these people have been talking for a while and you came in with something uh, that is kind of, uh, you know, uh, basic to them, even mm-hmm. if it's well-written or a fresh take on something. And so... Um, Whatever whatever story mode you're going to go with, it's it behooves one to 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 dig into what makes it amazing. What do you love about it? What what mm-hmm. what are its what are the the things within that genre that you love? Why do you love them? And what what magic is it? Um, like you know, I've in the past year, the past two to three years, found myself writing a lot more horror than I ever have. Mm-hmm. Um, Wonder why that could that, be. <laughs> and a lot of that has to do with the world being horrible and. Um, I think, uh, there's a truth to horror mm-hmm. that the truth to horror is that there are monsters and the world is awful and things want to hurt you and terrible things will happen that are, uh, unjust and that you cannot control or prevent, mm-hmm. um, and to which you will have, you may have no recourse, right? That's the truth that horror can get to, right? Yeah. Um, the truth that science fiction gets to, I mean, I say the, as if there's only one, but there are many, right. um, <laughs> You know, science fiction tells truths like that, you know, technology is amazing and we can do really cool things with technology and there might be limits on what technology can do. And the things we do with technology might have consequences that we can't, uh, mm-hmm. can't imagine or intend um, or that, um, you know, the rules of the universe might be uh night might not be as fixed as we think they are and that mm-hmm. maybe we can imagine something that uh is is different and better and exciting yeah um, um what you just said about horror uh one of i think one of the retur- recurring themes on this show when i talk to anybody who writes horror is uh how trying to wrap my words around it the right way. How relatable horror is specifically to us queer folks. Yeah. In in the way that you just said, where, like, the world is big and unjust and bad things happen in it, but that a lot of horror protagonists don't give up in the face of that. Yeah, I mean, this. I, I always say that, like, 
being queer is a superpower mm-hmm. um, and it gives you also it gives you x-ray vision it gives you all sorts of insights and abilities to perceive things differently and it's not a superpower that is without problems um, uh-huh. and, uh, in true uh, Octavia Butler fashion right having a special ability does not mean that everything's going to be amazing, right? Often Mm -hmm. it's a nightmare to have a special ability. If you're an empath and you're surrounded by people who are in pain, that's a nightmare. Um, But uh, I think that when you're a queer person, you are much less inclined to look around you and think that everything's great, Mm -hmm. right? Um, While your peers are hearing songs on the radio about love and hearing their own love story right. in it, you're not. You're like, as soon as you hear the, you know, the, the pronoun is going gonna, is gonna to be a, you know, might be a deal breaker. It might be that, mm-hmm. oh, this is not for me. I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to feel this. Um, and the authority figures that a straight person might think of as trustworthy and benevolent, mm-hmm. um, a queer person will often experience as, you know, being... A complete jerk uh, and right. abusive, and um, you know, full of hate that 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 other people will miss. So yeah, I think that queer people have a really interesting relationship to horror. Um, the interesting thing about horror is that I feel like horror is one of the few deal breaker genres. Right? There's people who just won't read it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if I write fantasy, there's people who don't love fantasy, but they might read a fantasy short story. Right? Um, horror is something that people often don't want to mess with because it's it's about opening your yeah. opening up the doors to your to your soul and and making yourself vulnerable to a, a, a in, intentionally unpleasant experience right um, so so yeah yeah and uh, and uh, romance is I think often the same way of being a, a deal breaker genre that some people will just say I don't read romance yeah uh, yeah and that's true. you know they are both as as a lot of smarter people than me have said, like they're both extremely visceral genres, and uh, they open a lot of vulnerability, like you said. Yeah, but people will read things with if if you don't sell it as this is a romance that you can often trick them into, you know, reading things that are horror inflected or romance inflected. Yes. I, I want to revisit something that you said a little while ago about um, being in conversation with the genre that you're working in because it reminded me of, and this was something I was thinking about a lot more, you know, a decade ago when I was fresh out of college and uh, in, a, in a program where for the most part speculative fiction was not encouraged, but that there were... You know, we would always be talking about like, oh, this this uh, literary author is try is going to try their hand at writing science fiction or whatever, and like, my I couldn't articulate it at the time, but my feeling was always sort of like a big eye roll, and what you said really articulates that. I can't trust that somebody who is a literary author is necessarily knows how to be in conversation with the genre. Yep. I think that's a great point. That's, that's definitely been my experience. There's always, you know, every year or two, there's like a big name, 
uh, literary author who publishes something that is horror or science fiction or fantasy or post-apocalyptic. And sometimes that's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's very clear that they've never read the genre that they're writing in or they, they, you know, the 10 books that I can think of that deal with a really similar topic, they have not read. Yeah. I will say that that is sometimes an amazing thing and that one of my favorite novels of all time is Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, mm. um, which is definitely science fiction and I think actually a horror novel. Um, and if he had been a science fiction writer and if he had had a science fiction editor, mm -hmm. that book would be very different. Oh, you know, uh -huh. someone, someone would have said, uh, you don't explain this until like <laughs> one page 96% of the way into the book. Like, you shouldn't, like, you're, you know, whatever. Like, but the fact that he doesn't is why it's so good. It's mm -hmm. like, it is perfect for being out of the conversation. It's doing something, it's saying some shit that has not been said in the conversation, or, or it's at least a really interesting take on it. And it's done in such an exciting way that mm -hmm. the people in the conversation would never have thought of that. So sometimes it's cool to blunder into a conversation and you might say that, you know, it's like your stoner friend who's like, they say the one thing you're like, whoa, yeah. okay, that was, that was on point, uh -huh. you know? Uh, so, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it is um, with just sticking with this conversation metaphor, I think it is a lot of the time that, the authors who are coming into whatever genre as, you know, a literary outsider are oftentimes being in, trying to be in conversation with uh, an out-of-date idea of the genre. Absolutely. And so what you were saying about, like, you know, you might say something really smart, but, you know, it might be ten years too late. Uh, Absolutely. But at the same, like... You know, like you were saying, like at the same time, there are instances where somebody could come in not being in conversation with the genre and say something just so wildly original. Yeah, I mean, it's good. It's good to. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's good to get out of your box, whatever your box mm -hmm. is. Um, if you do it right and you do it, um, you know, uh, with the appropriate respect, um, I think that can only help you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I read a lot of like, you know, like I'll read spy thrillers um, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll read things that are all over. I'll, I'll read literary fiction. I'll read stuff that's all over the place because, uh, you know, there's great stuff everywhere. Uh, yeah. and, and it's 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 exciting and fresh and keeps your stuff great because you you are keep you bringing bringing new things into the into the into the work. Yeah. And uh I mean, I, I similarly do the same thing, and I think a lot of the time I do the same thing through YA because because YA is treaty, treated as such a homogenous thing when it is really, like, eight million... You know, it is as many genres as any other, like, adult genre is, uh, but that you can, like... There's that space to play around, and a lot of the things a lot of the different books that are coming out in the YA space are in conversation in like a uh kind of an introductory conversation with the things that I'm interested in exploring yeah i i hear that um because again like they're not uh you know they're not talking down to 
the audience. It really is. It's just like, we don't want to throw you into the deep end on this, which, like, sometimes... Uh, it, it's it feels a little bit like going to going to somebody you know who is an expert in whatever genre and saying, "Hey, I need a reading guide for this." Awesome. Because uh, like the the things that got me, I mean, some of the things that got me into horror were like reading John Belair's books when I was eight. I love John Belair's. And, like, uh, Joan Aiken got me onto alt-history in, like, you know, in, like, third grade or something. I started reading her books. And, like, all of those things that I love are things I learned through Kidlet. Yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, I, I, now I feel like I'm probably repeating myself, but there's an honesty to it that, like, you know, even the, 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 the sort of classics of the genre, like, I don't know if you've ever read The Chocolate War, um, mm-hmm. but the chocolate war I reread recently and it has one of the most devastating, like brutal endings of any book I've ever read. It's just like, Oh, yeah. like, Oh, that sucks. Like that, <laughs> that asshole is going to get away with it. You know, like, uh, I think that, um, you know, kids, there's no, there's no, there's kids get it that the world is terrible mm-hmm. and that, that bullies get away with stuff and, and things aren't just, and it's, it's okay to, you don't you don't have to sugarcoat that for for kids. Yeah. Or and and uh you know, I think this is something that will speak to you directly like I know one of my favorite picture books to this day is the Butter Battle book and that is just mutually assured destruction is bad. <laughs> right. Right. But, I don't know that know, one. I don't know but that Dr. one. Seuss. But Dr. Seuss. Right. Right. It is uh I I really recommend it. It's like I think it was my favorite because we never owned the Lorax when I was, like, of the age to really super be into Dr. Seuss. Uh, but it is it is just an arms race book that ends with basically the two sides sitting with their finger right over the button. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that that's the sort of thing where, like, I didn't know the term mutually assured destruction <laughs> when I was eight. But I sure knew that, like, this was a really interesting and, like, terrible world that had been written in this, you know, very, very absurd, sugar-coated-looking uh, story. So, you know... I'll check like, it out. Like, I, I definitely... I'm not going to say that Dr. Seuss does not have problematic elements because I, I, almost everybody does. And uh, Seuss especially, like, very much of his time in a lot of ways, but also, like, wrote about how Hitler is bad and wrote about how you shouldn't cut trees down for the sake of capitalism. And, like, we got these things out of it. So at at this point, I don't know if it came through over the call or what, but this weird police box just showed up in my office here, and I was wondering if we could step into this time machine for a second and uh, go back, and if there's anything that you would like to have been able to tell your 
younger self as a writer? This is that RuPaul's Drag Race question that they always ask, yep. and then everybody and then everybody cries, um, and I'm not going to cry because um, I didn't really like work. I don't. I didn't have time to work up to it. Um, That's fair. Uh, just do it. Just keep going. <laughs> Um, which is like the one thing that he didn't need to be told. Um, mm-hmm. Like, yeah, go to Clarion a lot sooner. Like, go, go to the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop. Read a lot more um, science fiction and fantasy and horror. And um, I always say that for me, the thing that like made the difference in like me becoming a writer who is doing something that I'm really excited and proud about um, mm-hmm. I had always sort of imagined that like literary fiction and speculative fiction are both great and wonderful and I love them both, but they do different things. And speculative mm-hmm. fiction is for the exciting plot and the cool, cool monsters and the cool tech and whatever. And literary fiction is for the deep existential conversations um, and the sort of like really powerful character uh, journeys um, and, mm-hmm. and growth and it was reading ted chang that i realized like no actually you can do both like you though mm-hmm. they're not they don't need to be separate like when you when you embrace those two things when you when you look at the different things you love and try to do them together then then you're going to be writing stuff you're proud of so i guess i would say if you could do that in 2008 instead of 2012 <laughs> sam you'd really escape save yourself um, <laughs> a lot of trouble but you know, I always say it wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm super excited to be the writer that I am in conversation with and friends with the writers that I'm friends with and reading the books that I'm reading that are being published now. And so mm-hmm. uh, as much as as much of a like, you know, shithole uh, <laughs> slog as my career was for a long time, it's um, mm-hmm. it's it's made me who I am and. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely feel that in terms of, like... And and I think a lot of people have echoed the same, like, I wouldn't actually want to change it for myself. Because, you know, exactly like you say, like... We can't know who we would be if things had been different. Yeah, and, but you know, we're all speculative we fiction to writers... Be, so are like super cool people yes you know i if i don't think i would have started this podcast if i had sold a novel at 25 yeah like and you know now I, i i here i am almost 35 and like have this podcast that brings a lot of people joy brings me joy brings me like this opportunity to share conversations with amazing people like you and uh you know and like the 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 numbers and the accolades and whatever like i can't control those uh they you know they're nice when they happen but like it's you know i i wouldn't trade the last 3 years of podcasting for like knowing some sort of shortcut yeah i mean i think that what um what happens when you have to struggle for a really long time um is that you you know you keep learning you keep trying new things 
I think once you achieve a certain level of success, it's easy to sort of feel like, okay, I got it now. Um, mm-hmm. And to not be as, not to be, to be not, not to be as open or excited about learning and trying new things. Um, yeah. So this is how I, this is how I justify my past <laughs> pain to myself. I mean, plus, you know, we're science fiction writers and we know all about temporal paradoxes. And if you go mm-hmm. back in time to warn yourself about something, who knows how, uh, what what yeah. kind of nightmare scenario could could result from that? For sure, yeah. I uh, what what you just said about just like open being open to learning uh, is something that I think about that I I didn't think about in the same way. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends like when I was growing up had you know took music lessons or played sports or like outside of school or did martial arts or something and i didn't do any of those and then at 30 i decided to take up martial arts and so i started or 20 however old i was time is fake i started studying aikido and through that learned a lot about learning that and uh in like in aikido i know i can't speak as much for other uh other martial arts and as even for other japanese martial arts but there's this idea of like everybody talks about like oh yeah i'm gonna get a black belt and like that's the end goal but we treat it as uh black belt is when you start learning your first black belt is just like okay I've I've demonstrated basic competency now, and now I am going to start learning things. And uh, you know, I haven't. I I am one step away from black belt at this at, from my first black belt at this point, but it's very much like been that way. Of every time I show up to train, I am learning as much what I don't know as demonstrating what I do know. Uh, and like learning to apply that to my writing has been really good for me. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to stop learning. And when you do learn, it's really, I don't know, it does something to your brain. I started Mm -hmm. in the past year, I started learning programming, um, which I always resisted. Um, but I'm trying (laughs) to make a video game and it's actually really, really fun and really hard Mm -hmm. and really exciting. So um, and, and also like, I feel like my brain is different when it's like, like there's like a plasticity that, that, that reappears to learn new yeah. things. And that's like, you know, like I started, um, I have this sort of like, like, like many Jewish people, I have an ongoing ever shifting complex relationship with Judaism. Um, mm-hmm. and, but I recently started like, um, trying to memorize, prayers in hebrew um or 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 psalms or other things um Mm -hmm. and and the 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 learning and the memorizing of the the hebrew is like triggering like memories and and like sense impressions from when i was in hebrew school and like learning very very badly um but there's there's like a i don't know it's it's it op- it reopens doors that have been closed for a long time when you're mm-hmm. when you're learning things um whether yeah. or not it's something really new yeah yeah i really um 
that that makes me think of like I am a very I did not like school making me memorize things, but when there's something that like catches catches me, I really get into like memorizing things or just like if I do something enough, I will start to memorize uh things like that. So like you know, doing taking Japanese in Duolingo like is something that a at some point I'd like to travel to Japan again in my life after all this unpleasantness is over uh, and it would be nice to know more than a couple words of Japanese when I do that but also just like learning to think in new patterns because you know in Japanese like the sen sentence structure is so different than in English and so you're thinking about like okay where do where are the things that line up with how I already think and how can I like twist around for these new bits of knowledge or like um I uh I am I am Quaker I am raised Quaker I am don't practice a whole lot because that's just hard on top of everything else, but my wife is a practicing Buddhist. And through chanting with her and through just, like, hearing the liturgy over and over again, like, I know just, like, off the top of my head the first, like, 20 lines of one of the sutras. Which is amazing like the fact that we can memorize poetry the fact that we can memorize things is like is a weird hack and it's yeah. really like uh like important to creativity and to the history of 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 the written um or spoken word um, yeah and and we we've really it's like that's a muscle that we've allowed to atrophy right like we don't yeah. we might in school but we don't as like a matter of course memorize poems um or stories and and um, yeah, they live, they live really differently with us when we do. Yeah. And it's really, like, I was listening to a back episode of Be the Serpent, uh, just yesterday where they were talking about, uh, Beowulf and they were, uh, on the episode they were specifically talking about, uh, Maria Devana Headley's Beowulf, uh, which I read last year and absolutely adore, I adore, uh, I adore her. I have not read that yet, but everything she does is magic for me. It's so good. Uh, and I, I ended up reading it back-to-back -back with the Seamus Heaney Beowulf, which I read in high school. Uh, and, you know, in high school was just sort of like... I got into it a little bit because... Because it's a foundational text and, like, I already knew, like, oh, this is... The Hobbit is Beowulf and you know, all this stuff, but, like, I was still, you know, a little shit who hated school, uh, and especially, like, getting me to read things in ninth grade was really a non-starter, but going back and rereading it was a whole lot of fun, but they were talking about, uh, on Serpentcast, they were talking about the alliteration and uh Hedley carrying through some of that alliteration in her translation and that, that is like 
you know, it feels good in your brain and it feels good when you say it out loud, but it also, like, they did that because it came from an oral tradition. And, like, I also read the the new translation of the Odyssey recently and, like, it's that same, like, coming out of this oral tradition thing that is really... It feels good in the brain. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pattern. Like, that. Like why is Shakespeare an iambic pentameter? Because that makes it really easy to memorize. And if you're an actor, um, that's really important to you. Um, yeah, so, especially if you're doing, like, one of his super long plays. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's amazing. Like, that, like, that's a, like, you can get somebody to memorize a six-hour thing, right? Like, incredible. Yeah, yeah I, like, I can... You could put me on the spot right now and I could recite the whole of The Raven because it's got a very predictable yeah. rhyme scheme and because it's just got some, like, really chewy bits of, like, uh, like just some really good, like, consonants and assonants going on within the lines. And, like, you know, I, I memorized that for fun. I memorized one stanza for school... But I memorized every other stanza of it because uh, because I was a little goth and because that's just, <laughs> like, a fun thing to do. And, like, it's a good party trick. Yeah. Nice. Um, so before we start wrapping things up, talk to us a little bit about The Blade Between, because that is coming out in a new paperback edition next month. Yeah. Um, the Blade Between is my fourth novel. It came out in December of 2020. It's really um, heavily rooted in my own experiences of growing up in this town called Hudson, New York, which mm -hmm. in real life has gentrified a lot. Um, and like, for example, the, my father, my family had a butcher shop on the main street for many generations. And in 1996, my father sold it to settle a tax debt when the store closed. He sold it for $50,000 and it just sold um last year for 1.5 million to a Oof. hotel that is going to make that has already made it into their gym right so right. you know it's like it's like a lot of things where this happens where like there's an influx of money and suddenly there's a lot of new businesses and a lot of thriving um cultural stuff which is great except that people can't afford to live there anymore um mm -hmm. and and people are getting displaced and so this is the sort of story about what happens when people decide to fight back against gentrification and there might be some malevolent spirits tampering with <laughs> their actions my town was in real life a, a whaling town even though it's 114 mm -hmm. miles up the hudson river um so this is sort of imagines a city where the ghosts of the murdered whales um have sort of like existed and stayed and sort of hold the city in this sort of like protective but also oppressive um mm -hmm. like uh, miasma um, of of the supernatural, so you know I'm shenanigans ensue. Um, yeah, uh, it, it 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 came out in December 2020, and it comes out in paperback uh, February 1st. That's fabulous, listeners. Links to get either the hardback or the paperback will be in the show notes. As always, uh, we always love to support the authors who come on here. Uh, in addition. Is there anything that you've been reading, listening to, watching, anything like that that you're really excited about uh, pumping up for our listeners? Uh, I've been reading a lot. It's It's been great. Uh, Excellent. You know, even, even someone who's obsessed 
uh, as obsessed as I am with reading, it's sometimes difficult to carve out the space for it. Um, and mm-hmm. I've been successful with that lately. So um, some of my favorite recent ones are This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amel Motar and mm. uh, Max Gladstone, Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Morena Garcia. Um, I loved uh, Notes from the Burning Age by Claire North. I read The Echo Wife by Sarah Gailey oh. in like 48 hours. It was so good. Um, so good. And um, the Gideon and Harrow the Ninth. Um, like everyone else, I have fallen helplessly under the spell of Gideon. Um, yeah. Oh, and The Unbroken by C.L. Clark. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was is really, really good. Nice. Um, have you had a chance to read... Caitlin Starling's The Death of Jane Lawrence yet? No, but I really liked The Luminous Dead, so I am excited to check out the next one. Is it good? Have you read it? I just finished it, and it was maybe not the best bedtime reading, but that's that's when my brain has carved reading space out. Uh, but it is fantastic. It does a whole lot of really interesting things with... Uh, it plays around with gothic romances and uh, has some really some really interesting things to say about uh, like the assumptions we make about one another and uh, about infatuation and uh, about fucky math ghosts. Great. So yeah. Absolutely would recommend 10 out of 10 for me. Awesome. Uh, Sam, before we get going, where can our listeners find you? Oh, I'm everywhere. (laughs) Too much. Um, I'm on Twitter at SentenceBender. And I am at, uh, I'm on Instagram at Sam.J.Miller. And uh, yeah, I, you know, people can get in touch with me through my website. There's a contact form on there, just samjmiller.com. Um, yeah, I've got, I, I forgot to mention that I have a short story collection coming out in May called Boys, Beasts, and Men. Um, oh, nice. That is, uh, will, it will be well um, um, hustled on all of those spaces. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, pre-order link, if it's out right now, will be in the show notes. And uh, yeah. So much, so much to look forward to in terms of books coming out this year, uh, and I'm excited to add that to my TBR. Awesome. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really exciting to revisit Blue Matter um, and and to have this conversation, which I think is like the kind of conversation that that any writer could have, but lots of times we don't. So mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, thank you. This is exciting. Hell yeah. Uh, listeners, stick around next month when our guests will be R.J. Theodore and Ivy Noel Weir. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter, at TrunkCast, 
and I tweet at HBBisniaks. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Don't self-reject.